0: Welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Tim Kachuriak about donor attention, how charities, big and small, can build meaningful relationships using digital channels with their supporters, and importantly, how charities can give value to their supporters to develop healthy one-to-one relationships and at scale. In the pressure cooker of increased need and reduced resources that many charities are currently working in, This conversation has something for everyone, from small groups to medium and even large charities. As you'll hear, Tim is very articulate and engaging, and I enjoyed speaking with him about this fascinating and crucial topic. This episode is brought to you by our Platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is Tim Kuchuriak speaking with me about taking a new look at donor retention. Mm -hmm. I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Kachuriak, founder and chief innovation and optimization officer for Next After. Tim, welcome to Charity Chats.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, we're really grateful that you're here. And, and uh, maybe we can start by, um, if you could tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you found yourself in the uh, not-for-profit sector.
1: Yeah. I mean, I took a kind of indirect pathway into the nonprofit sector, like most people do, honestly. So uh, I graduated from college. Um, it's kind of a tough time for our country. It was like right after 9-11. So like nice. there's not a lot of jobs, especially for somebody who desperately wanted to work in the field of marketing and advertising. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, I worked at a country club all during high school and college. Uh, I like to joke I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. Nice. Uh, and so the gentleman who was the president of the country club was also the president of the second largest ad agency uh, where I grew up in Pittsburgh. And, uh, yeah, I met with him. I did my dog and pony show. And he's like, look, I'd love to hire you kid, but you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday.
0: Wow, you know,
1: 9-11 wow. has hit our industry harder, agency harder, can't help you.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I wandered in the wilderness for about six months. I met a serial entrepreneur. I did a few things for his, uh, little businesses. They operated a couple of freelance projects. He said, why don't you start a business? I'll introduce you to people. I'll be your partner. And you know, the rest is up to you, kid. So, uh, I had nothing to lose. I was living in my parents' basement at the time. I had no uh, overhead, uh, no romantic interest. I was like, why not? Let's go for it. <laughs> so I started my first business uh, in 2002 and it was called Ambience Interactive, basically a general uh, digital marketing company. Did that for about five years and then decided I really wanted to work uh, in the nonprofit sector. And so I sold my my agency and we sold our house and I moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So, you know, a pretty big difference in terms of geography. Yeah. Uh, and I went to work for a nonprofit. I was there for a short amount of time. And I discovered that there's basically uh, advertising agencies that work directly with nonprofits. And uh, I got recruited to go work for one of those here in Dallas. Uh, and that's how I got here. Um, and then during that time working at that agency, I just really become obsessed with trying to understand how do you optimize the online donor experience. And that's kind of what's led me to, uh, to start next after.
0: And does and that passion come from? Is it the, um, is it almost the kind of the, just wanting to crack that challenge? Or is it also that kind of that, that drive to make the world a better place? How, how idealistic are you? What, what's your kind of driving force?
1: Well, I mean, our, our vision at Next After is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. And yeah. um, and I mean, that's a, a big, hairy, audacious goal that, you know, honestly is exciting enough uh, and big enough to captivate my imagination for the rest of my life. Sure. And so, how we go about that, our mission is really to decode what works in fundraising and then to get that into the hands of as many fundraisers as possible. We realize that no matter how big our company gets, you know it takes a village right and so we we're trying to figure out what works and then just try to you know practice generosity by openly sharing sharing that with the with the sector
0: is it interesting um the 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 idea of of taking the not-for-profit sector or the charity sector to the very next level and raising more money than ever before. Because we've, we've spoken before on the podcast uh, with people about lots of different types of things. But one of the things we spoke about fairly recently was around legacy giving. Mm-hmm. And there was a, uh, some figures that came out of that conversation which said that the biggest transfer of wealth is about to take place uh, between the baby boomers and the next generation. And so I guess there is a real, just from that point of kind of fundraising, there is a huge potential, isn't there, for a, a next level? Yeah, it creates a sense of urgency
1: for sure, right? With the wealth transfer that is about to take place. You're absolutely right. There's also some pretty disturbing, you know, trends, if you actually look at some of the data. So like the number of giving giving households has been consistently going down, at least here in the US, for sure, mm. uh, over the last uh, 20 or so years. Sure. Um, but those giving households are giving larger amounts of money, right? Mm. And so, I asked myself, well, is that a good thing? Is that really like, is that how you create the most generous generation by just getting like, you know, more people or less people to give more money? Mm. Uh, And I don't think that's true. I think it's about like democratizing, you know, opportunities for people to give, make it so it's really a big tent where everybody has an opportunity to uh, support causes and charities and organizations that are very dear to them and they're passionate about.
0: We've spoken before on the, on the podcast about the challenges that the pandemic is posing for charities here in the UK and the behaviors that charities need to demonstrate in order to build donor-centered approaches. From your experience, what are the not-for-profits doing well to build lasting relationships with supporters in the face of the common struggle that everyone is is having at the moment?
1: Yeah, so when uh, everything shut down last March, um, I looked at our CTO and I said, look, a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions about what they need to do right now. And we're sitting on top of a huge amount of very important data that can answer a lot of those questions. So um, if you don't know much about next after and what we do, one of the things we do is about four times a year, we launch a major mystery donor study where we go out and we'll subscribe to hundreds of different organizations. We monitor everything they send us, every email, text message, voicemail. We've got boxes of direct mail stacked to the ceiling. We go through those pieces of correspondence. We analyze them and we wait for the organizations to ask us to become a financial partner by giving a donation. And when they do that, we go online to their website. We'll give a donation as small as $20, as large as $5,000. And then we continue to monitor how they communicate and engage with us over time. So because we do this four or five times a year for the last nine years, we have thousands of nonprofit organizations that were following all of their communications. Yeah. So we started to like look at that data and say, how can we really mine that and answer some of the questions? One of the questions people were having was, are nonprofits communicating with their donors right now? Mm-hmm. And the answer to the question was, at least digitally speaking, they were communicating more last year, especially during those early days of the pandemic than they were any other time in their existence. Like the the percentage of emails that were being sent was dramatically higher. Mm -hmm. And then we started to look at the content. Are they talking about COVID or the coronavirus or pandemic? Are they mentioning their communications before March 1st? Zero. No, virtually nobody was actually talking about it. Mm -hmm. After March 31st, Upwards of 76% of all communications, whether that would be a newsletter, um, a piece of cultivation content, or uh, an appeal, uh, direct to appeal, mentioned one of those words in, in the communications. So they were, they were being kind of like real about the situation and what was going on. They weren't kind of just like, you know, hammering down with the same old message they had done before. But the more, more important question is, okay, well, how are donors responding? Are they continuing to give? And so we had a separate set of data that answered that question. And what we were seeing is that people were giving more online gifts every single month than the previous month last year, right? Mm-hmm. Of the previous year. And so now that we have like complete data set, I think reached released their charitable giving report and uh, for 2020 and digital giving was up 21% year over year.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, overall giving was up 2% uh, in the U.S., But digital was up 21%, which means digital became the lifeline during the pandemic. And I think what happened last year and is continuing on this year as we're continuing to monitor this is that nonprofits have gotten the much needed shove into digital transformation. Hmm. So the question you ask about like, well, what should they be doing and how do they do it right is the precise question that needs to be answered. Most nonprofit, you know, email or online communications is not great, and I have data to kind of explain that. But you were about to ask a question
0: over here in the UK. We, I suppose, you know, we hear a lot about um, how the pandemic has forced. I mean, you know, charities, the forces of change have been forced to change by a force of the pandemic, right? Because right, you know, and I've I've seen it myself. You know, the the way that uh, that the buzzword here is pivot. The way that, you know, that charities have had to pivot in a way that, you know, large or small, they probably have never had to do or that, that, you know, they never have done um, in the past has been miraculous, you know. And I've seen that. I mean, it was interesting when you were talking and forgive me, because uh, I I, I think back to here in the UK, I think we went into lockdown around about the 15th of March or something like that. Mm -hmm. And in the in the US, it was a little bit later, wasn't was, it, 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 was, was it was right around that it was maybe it was a week later because yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you mentioned you saw um you saw content that wasn't mentioning covid until the end of march did you get a feeling were you saying there that that your feeling was that the, that the charities weren't responding quickly enough to the the change in the circumstances
1: i think the lockdown really kind of like forced the issue like okay. it really kind of made it brought it into the forefront and they said yeah. look we need to address this right and sure. we need to talk about it And I think the really smart organizations, they did, uh, you know, using your word, the pivot. They made the pivot. They figured out a way to either change how they do their mission delivery um, or they just kind of like, you know, sat on the sidelines and and they're kind of getting left behind. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we spoke to a guy um, who who, over here, um, who was quite... Worked with uh, the NSPCC, which you know, mm-hmm. large charity over here. You probably know them. And uh, Giles Pegram, CB, and he said to me um, a few uh, shows ago, he said that he um, he would be outraged if a charity that was struggling that he supported didn't ask him in that moment of need to help to give another donation or to support them. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the kind of the gist of it. Did you get any sense from the work that you've, you've been doing over the pandemic that there were charities uh, in the US or elsewhere who maybe were afraid to ask donors who, you know, in maybe with a sense of empathy that, you know, we can't ask our donors to give because they're going through a hard time. Did you get any sense of that? And, and is that the right kind of Tack to take, do you think when when you think your audience is ha- having a, a difficult time themselves?
1: Yeah, we, we actually did analyze that. So we looked at different ways that people would actually make an appeal to give as it related to um you know the current situation, right? Mm-hmm. And there was like kind of three different approaches that emerged. There was kind of like there was the natural approach where it's like, hey, you know, um, we were supposed to deliver this food to these people. We can't do that. You know what I mean? Like because of this, but you can help us by, you know, unblocking that by giving it, you know what I mean? So it was like a natural thing. Like, you know, you can help us actually help these people that are desperate need for what we have to offer them.
0: Sure.
1: There was then kind of like um, the neutral approach, which was kind of like, you know, they, they didn't necessarily specifically talk about how their cause was impeded or needed a donation to help unlock something. Uh, but they said, look, you know, uh, given times such as these where we're, you know, kind of under this tremendous solidarity that we're experiencing, like they, they had this like phraseology, just say, look, we're all kind of experiencing the same thing right now. You get where we're at, right? And so like, would you please continue with your support because you're empathizing with where we're at, right? So that yeah. was kind of like the really neutral kind of approach. And then there was a forced approach where they they tried to kind of like, use the pandemic as an excuse for people to give but sure. it had there was no
0: relation to anything that they that so did so they weren't doing like frontline work or anything like that so it's a little That's bit correct, little isn't it yeah and it
1: was it was yeah. it just felt, felt very contrived very mm. very dirty right they could have just said look we're actually like hurting right now because you know
0: um most people were in one way or another weren't they i, I guess if if you try and bend your ask too much to fit in with the state of play or a wider cultural issue, then there's a real risk that you don't seem very authentic, I guess. That's
1: right. That's right. And I mean, that's just like basic kind of stuff, right? Be authentic, be transparent, Hmm. because the the biggest thing that we have to overcome in the nonprofit space is, you know, donor trust. Like, do they trust us? Can they feel like when they give their gift that it's going to do the things that you've promised that they're going to do. Right. And so, you know, like, that's something that, you know, is a constant battle that we have to overcome because there is some bad actors out there that have really made it hard for the rest of us.
0: We, you know, we have surveys over here. Um, from I think NFP has done some work around trust in charities and that you know trust in charities has been kind of not it's not particularly high you know I think we're trusted more than the government but that's not saying much you know but uh, right. do you get do you get a sense of that over in the states as well in terms of the trust in charities and whether that's going up or down or anything like that
1: yeah big time and you know we've actually run experiments around that so like that's the other part of what next after does is um, we run like rigorous scientific online fundraising experiments to try to see how if we change certain things in our appeal and our website and our email and our you know social media posts, how that actually impacts donor behavior. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you like one just practical example. So uh, and this may seem like a real like kind of strange one, but um, the most anxiety uh, induced part of the giving experience is right when the donor gets to filling out the payment information. So we've done kind of like these different little like screen recordings. And it's yeah. like, you know, it's like takes a second to fill out the name, two seconds to fill out the last name, you know, a few seconds to fill out the, the postal address. When you get to the the donation, you know, box where you have to put in your credit card information um, or bank, you know, draft information, hmm. it takes like five minutes. Right. And so like that is the point where like there's a lot of mental processes that are taking place. And one of those processes are, is like, is this safe to do? And I know that seems strange in 2021. Like, is it still safe to conduct business online? But there is a lot of bad actors. There's spamming, there's phishing, there's spoofing. There's all these things that are in our back of our mind saying like, Mm -hmm. you know, can I really trust this? So one little experiment we did is um, we ran an A-B split test. And in the treatment version, the B version, we simply just shaded the payment area and we put a little padlock there. That's all we did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just to visually reinforce that, like when you're putting information in this area of the form, it's secure. Now, were both pages exactly the same level of encryption and security? Absolutely. But simply by putting that little visual reminder there, it led to a 15% increase in online donations. So it's wow. little things like that that are really interesting that say, yes, trust is still an issue. And there are things we could do very simple things like putting a padlock and shading your, your payment information. But even just saying things like we've, we've done a little test where underneath the button, which is also kind of an anxiety induced moment. Like people kind of hover on that button when they fill out all their information and they're getting ready to hit send. There's that kind of like, do I really want to do this? Um, and we've, we've put, uh, a couple lines of text under there just saying something simple like you know again your donation is 100 percent secure and you know by the way it's going to go directly to you know the purposes that we stated you know here it's just like basically reassuring them mm. that you can trust us and that's led to like, you know, upwards of 20% increase in donations on that
0: simple little line of that's text. That's amazing, isn't it? Because yeah, I guess that's not, you know, all of these hurdles that a fundraiser has to jump through in order to, you know, kind of get to the people and give and talk to them in the right way and all these things. And then to fall at that last hurdle of that, you've convinced the donor to make a donation and then they decide not to because they're worrying about, you know, fraud or spam or whatever. And I, I think I heard recently over here, um, on the UK radio, they're talking about, you know, there has been a, a big increase over the pandemic of um, kind of scams. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess people are probably more and more wary um, of, of putting out payment details. That's absolutely right. Can
1: I share a few more just kind of like, you know, yeah, maybe this By your yeah. audience, and maybe there's some things that are like, kind of like quick hit things that could be really helpful to absolutely that's listening. Please, so please. Uh, just other kind of like tests, let's start with the donation page. So if you look at most donation pages, um, they're they don't have a lot of content on them right So like once you finally navigate there like you click the donate button or give button or whatever and you get to the page, hmm. it's usually just kind of like maybe like hey donate now and it's a form right?
0: sure
1: And um, there's a problem with that because if you actually like if you if you presuppose that people but it, when they click that donate button uh, and, you know and get to that page, that their mind is 100% made up, um, you make a mistake, right? You make a critical right. mistake. Because I don't know what the stats are in the UK, but here in the States, less than 25% of the people that click that donate button and get to the donation page actually complete the transaction.
0: It's probably so, similar, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, so so what gives? So why, why not, right? Well, it's because, um, again, there's still a series of decisions they have to make even when they get to that page. And one of the things that you could do, this is a very simple thing that anybody can do, is add more copy, more text that explains the reason why they should give their gift, hmm. why they should give their gift now, how their gift's gonna make impact, and and then put the form below that. So we've run hundreds of experiments testing that exact concept. I mean, this increases donations two, three, 400% or more by simply adding more text to your donation page. And the reason why is because the text conveys to the donor the value proposition for their gift, right? What is the impact that's going to occur, right? Why is this a good idea? And what we've also seen through testing by adding more text to the page that conveys a strong value proposition, not only do more people give, they give larger gifts,
0: My decay. right?
1: Because they have a better understanding, again, how their gift is actually going to create impact in the world. So simple things that anybody could do.
0: A lot of the small charities or, or even the groups that are maybe listening to this uh, uh, this podcast, you know, they'll be using the third party existing um, sites. So CAF, Giving, Blackboard, all of these things. Sure. I think they have functionality on those pages where you can, as a charity, you can go in and you can say, you know, maybe 10 pounds will get you this type of thing. You know, yep. and obviously yep. you've got to be careful with would, could, you know, so that you're not restricting it. But um, I suppose that's the, that's the advice, is it? That you know, make the most of those functions if you're using those third party sites. Yeah, I mean that that's helpful
1: too. Like adding adding kind of like gift handles. But I'm what I'm suggesting is like write a few paragraphs of text okay. right. that explains to the donor how their gift is actually going to create impact. Hmm. even if it's the same thing that they just saw from you know where they came from before. Because you know, if you think about it, there's this constant kind of weighing of cost versus value, right? Sure. Right. And there's mental costs associated with actually completing the transaction form. I mean, it's, it's kind of a pain in the butt. Right. Like, I mean, you, there's a lot. It's a lot of work to go and complete that thing. And so if your page is all cost and no value, mm. then it's out of balance is, is what we would suggest. So
0: we talked before uh, on the show around. You know, sometimes um, I suppose you need both things, but the idea of kind of the qualitative and the quantitative. So, you know, telling uh, the audience about that one child or that one animal or that one part of the cause that you're helping is so good at building that kind of empathy and that connection. But then also kind of showing the bigger impact of it. When you're right. talking about that kind of that initial donation that somebody might be making to a cause, do you have any views on on what what we should be talking to those people about in terms of that, that getting them to to commit to a donation? Yeah. So so whatever the source
1: channel is that leads people to the donation page, that's where you tell the one story, the one child, the one animal, you know, the one, one aspect of impact, right? So it's like really kind of drawing them in. That is the emotional connection. I mean, like we really, our, our brains are hardwired to actually really respond to and understand and interpret and be moved. Actually, there's, it's like physical reaction to story, right? Sure. But then once you get to the page, that's where you connect it to the bigger impact. And that's where like the more qualitative and, you know, and, and it's going to achieve this and this and this, because that's where the rational brain kicks in. Like you were talking about, right. like, do I, can I really afford this? Can I really do this? Is this really going to make an impact? Well, sure it is. Here's the reasons why, right? And oh, by the way, you can trust us. No, oh, by the way, we're credible. I mean, like, it's all those kind of like, Weird cognitive factors that you have to, you know, think about as you go about designing the donation experience.
0: And I, I guess it's probably open for debate, but it occurs to me that, you know, in a way, it's 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 vital that we do kind of tap that emotional muscle uh, as fundraisers, because of course, if you if you rationalize everything, you know, the the world, you know, when you go after these huge causes, you want to make the world a fairer place. It, it's kind of an irrational thing that your five pound of $5 donation could help to create that it has to be emotional doesn't it it's too big it's too big a vision to kind of grasp rationally i suppose
1: yeah i mean the 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 part of the brain that's responsible for decision making has zero capacity for language right so so our decisions like really stem from this more visceral place and how do you get through to that with story with emotion like with things that actually speak the language uh, that part of the brain, the limbic brain there. So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to, you have to lead with that. Uh, but then there's also kind of like, you know, you kind of wake up, right. <laughs> and then you're like, wait, you know, there's all those other questions where your brain's asking yourself, like, are we sure this is the right idea? It's like almost like your two parts of your brain are having a conversation with each other yeah. that you can't hear or, or control, right. Which is sure. kind of crazy. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's such a wild, And that's why I love the work that we do is because like, you know, we get to go and try and figure out like, what are the different levers? What are the different ways? What's the right sequencing of information and communication of emotion that's going to ultimately move people to do this wonderful thing that we know is good for them, which is giving to some cause or some person that's not themselves, right? <laughs>
0: What are the common mistakes that not for profits are making in their approach to building relationships with supporters, both existing and and kind of new new supporters too? Yeah, I mean the biggest mistake that most nonprofit organizations
1: make is that they treat their donor like a cash machine, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's it's always asking it's never giving right and so i mean if you think about any sort of relationship you have so fundraising always happens in the context of a relationship we believe and we've decoded this through our research that people give to people not to email machines not to websites not to direct mail campaigns people give to people right and if you think about the relationships you have with certain people if all i did was call you all the time and say hey Sam, can i borrow your hammer hey Sam, can i borrow your ladder <laughs> hey Sam, can i do this you know what you're not gonna take my calls anymore no right? exactly absolutely exactly yeah. And so if we treat our donors like that, our donors are not stupid and they're mm. not like just little numbers inside an Excel spreadsheet. They are living, breathing, complex, social, emotional human beings, right? And they deserve to be treated with respect and, you know, and and to be loved, right? And so I mean if you really if if you really love you know, humanity and, and, you know, like really love, you know, what you're doing with your cause. Like you should love your donors too. That's part of that, right. That's part of that ecosystem. So, um, and this, I'll give you an example of some experiments that we've run around that, um, exact thing. So an organization came to us, uh, and they were doing exactly what I I, I was suggesting they were, they were asking way too much. Mm-hmm. So it was a very large organization and they came to us. They said, Hey, um, we need your help. Uh, our email engagement and email donations have fallen off a cliff and we don't know why. We said, okay, um, can we look at some data? So they gave us a six month snapshot of data. And what we noticed is that, um, the volume of email that they were sending was consistent during that six month period of time. Mm-hmm. And then we overlaid two additional pieces of data. Uh, one was the percentage of people that reopen and read a message. And the other is the percentage of people that delete the message without even opening it. And what we noticed is that the read um, line was Mm -hmm. consistently lower than the delete on site line, right? So, like, they were deleting their emails without even opening them. But they were continuing to send the same amount of volume of communication, right? And so then when we looked at, we looked at the, uh, the inboxing of their emails at the beginning of that six month window, they were getting 78% of their emails were being delivered into the inbox. By the end of that window, 38% of their emails were being delivered. Wow. And we said, you're asking too much. They were sending like two appeals per week. Hmm. We said, you can't do that. And they said, um,
0: That's mad, uh, isn't it? Two appeals a week. Two appeals per week. And so, they said, people, well, so people were kind of hearing from the twice a week with a, with an ask. With an ask. That's right. That's and crazy. this is a very,
1: very large organization, right? So mm. keep that in mind. And they do a lot of emergency appeal kind of things like that. So we said, you need to stop doing that. And they said, well, we can't because we have all this pressure that we're under. We have to deliver revenue and we can't afford to not send those emails.
0: Mm.
1: And we said, okay, um, instead of sending less, what if we can make it so you can send more? And they said, well, what? Okay, now you're talking our language. And I said, but the, the, we want you to send one additional email every single week. But this email is not allowed to ask for money. What this email has to do is deliver value back to the donor. Hmm. You need to send them an ebook. You need to send them a story. You need to show them a video. You need to give them something back and not ask for a gift at all. I can't even have like a donate button in the footer like There's nothing. Uh, and we also want the emails to come from a human being. We want them to come from a person. And we want them to come from the same person every single time. We don't care who the person is, but this person is going to be that person's person or Mm -hmm. that donor's person. So they did that. They put that in place. uh, And then over, you know, three month period of time, we went and looked and their email engagement went up 89%. Wow! Not just for the the cultivation emails, but for the appeals as well, which means people were opening them and they're clicking them again, and they're getting inboxed again. But also the percentage of donations was going up significantly well. I think it was like 38% overall increase in donations across all the various different segments by sending more email. So the biggest mistake that we make is that we don't send enough cultivation content. We're always just sending like, you know, donation kind of content. So that's a great lesson for anybody that's listening is just diversify that. Um, Another thing that we found that's really, really, really important is to humanize your communications, People don't give to email machines, they give to people, right? And so how can you do that? Well, if you look at most nonprofit fundraising emails, they're highly designed. They got images and graphics and buttons, lots of HTML. There's multiple calls to action. The copy sounds like it's written from a professional copywriter because it usually in fact is. And the problem is is when a potential donor sees that in the inbox, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. Sure. Yeah. People don't want to be marketed to. Do you? No. Nobody (laughs) does, right? Right we wanna be communicated with, right? And so what we've done, we've run this test with dozens of organizations we've done in different countries, we've done in different languages where you get rid of all the marketing veneer, get rid of the Mm. images, get rid of the graphics, get rid of the buttons, get rid of the HTML and write a more plain text email. So it looks like an email from Tim to Samuel, right?
0: Sure, yeah. Um, Like a friend to a friend, I guess. A friend to a friend, a human to a human.
1: Imagine that, right? Yeah. Yeah three, four, 500% increase in donations consistently wow. Like when we see that happen. So that's another th- a great lesson for anybody listening, like test sending your appeals as a more plain text email and write it as you would to like, you know, a friend as opposed mm-hmm. to like a donor target, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose there might be some charities that are going down that you know, I, I guess I've heard of it myself where, you know, we've been talking before about um, the kind of the, the the risk of being perceived as spam or, or as uh, some kind of fraudulent activity. And I know, in, in you know, in the typical kind of archetypal email that you get, which is a fraudulent one, the spelling's wrong, you know, it doesn't have your name on it, you know, those kind of things. So I guess some of those risks can be ironed out by making sure that your, you know, staff at a uh, charity are writing well-worded emails And I guess, you know, maybe some charities are thinking that kind of having that automated, you know, whether it's MailChimp or some other platform site that a lot of UK charities are using to to send out these kind of HTML emails might help to um, encourage people that it isn't spam. But then, as you say, there's that other space then of making it look like a... um, you know, a Nando's or a McDonald's advert or something like that, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, in your day when you're getting, you know, I think on there's some stat around people, most, on average, people are getting 200 emails a day or something here. So when uh, all those emails you're getting through, all those Sometimes offers and things that, like yeah. that, you know, it's just kind of another thing is bin it. So... It's a balancing act, I guess, isn't it, with emails? and and It is. And they don't have to be
1: unbranded, right? Just like, you know, send it like you would, like, you know, my email has like my signature at the bottom and it's got the logo, you know I mean? Just like any sort of corporate email you would send, right? So, yeah, it doesn't have to be unbranded. It can have all those kind of trust indicators, but it just, it does so much for the relationship. Something's going to happen when you start sending emails like that. Uh, Number one, you probably will see higher donations. Number two, you're going to see a lot more replies. Mm. And that's something you have to be prepared for. Um, and we think that actually the reply is the most underrated metric in email marketing. Because what that suggests is that there is an actual relationship there. They they believe that you are emailing them. And so they're emailing you back. And you have to be prepared to, you know, to respond to those. So that's that's something just to keep in mind as well.
0: I guess, especially potentially for smaller charities or groups, they can take a view on, on the balance of resource and potential uh, engagement by thinking about things like if they haven't, if they've got more resource, they've got less money, maybe they, maybe it's worth them putting their time into actually writing individual emails. So, you know, we hear about, um, and I, I've I've experienced it, I've actually got a an example here, a, a thank you card that was handwritten for me for a donation I made. And that meant so much to me because it was clearly not printed I, I, for me. One of my pet hates is the, the printed handwritten letter. You know, right. I think what's the point of that? That's crazy. Right. Exactly. To many of our listeners will represent small charities, as we've said, even voluntary groups of, um just collection of volunteers with little or no budget. Is there any hope for them that they can still do the, these things to improve the supporter journey for those that support them and how important is it that they do?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think all the things that we talked about today, that's, that's why I specifically mentioned them is that they're, they're very accessible. I mean, like, you know, if you have a website, you can edit it, the donation page and add more copy to explain what the donors, you know, contribution is going to do. Um, You can certainly like send emails that actually take you less time to design, less time to create, you know, and, um, you know, just send them more plain text. So that's a very simple, practical thing that everybody can do. The third thing I, I would suggest for every single charity to think about is how do I start to build a larger email list, right? So out of, you know, all the different sub channels that exist online from social media to search to everything else, Email is still the workhorse in terms of driving the most online revenue. And we've found that the size and quality of your email list is the number one leading indicator of your ability to raise money online. So you need to have a strategy for that. You need to think about lead generation or whatever that looks like in your context. Um, Some simple things you can do is start to look at some of the content that you have. Uh, say, can I take some of this content and repackage it and turn it into something that I can offer to people in exchange for an email address? So maybe this is a way where you start the relationship. And what you're doing is you're starting the relationship by giving the donor something of value. um, And then that gets you their contact information. And then you can continue to have that conversation and connect the dots to the larger opportunity to give. So that would be another thing I would just, you know, encourage everybody to think about is like, how do I, you know, build a way to continue to grow my email list.
0: The evolution of technology is fascinating and sometimes overwhelming. Do you see technology as offering transformative opportunities for -for not-for-profits and how they engage in a meaningful way with their supporters? I
1: think that all technology is very useful and helpful as long as it helps to facilitate a genuine relationship between you and your donors, right? The barriers to entry to doing any sort of online communication is very low, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about it, like to go send direct mail, you know, you got to go write it, print it, send it. I mean, that's expensive, sure. right? There's yeah. a barrier to entry there. With, with digital, any fool can go and start email blasting people. Any fool can go post anything on social media. So because the barriers to entry are so low, we don't, actually spend enough time thinking and planning what we're going to say we think mm. that it just doesn't matter I'll we'll just keep you know i'll just overwhelm them with volume and just send more stuff and
0: you know it's a game of, of numbers right sure. but
1: that's the wrong way to think about it
0: so i guess it's it, a crowded space because there are maybe more people that can afford to as you say just blast away right that's right and so i think because the barriers are entry are so low
1: it's led to like the proliferation of really crappy digital communications mm. So there's the opportunity for you to rise above that by actually really trying to embrace some of the things we talked about here today, which is humanizing your communications, using technology as a bridge to help you have more seemingly one-to-one conversations with your donors and potential donors. So that's the way you need to think about technology. Um, And then, yeah, what you use, I mean, it really, whatever is going to facilitate that for you and your context
0: uh, is great. Tim Kachuriak, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Well, I have certainly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. big thank you there to Tim Kachuriak. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him and we hope to have him join us again for another charity chat soon. We spoke a lot about donors and the issues of trust. Of course, trust in charities generally and a charity specifically are both hurdles to giving that must be overcome. According to the Charity Commission of England and Wales in their 2021 Public Trust in Charities report, we are seeing an increase in trust from a mean of 5.5 back in 2018 to 6.4 in 2021. According to this same survey, charities are now trusted more than banks and almost as much as the police. But even among those who trust charities generally and are moved to get so far as making a donation through a charity's website, Tim made the point that a very small percentage of these donors actually then complete the process of giving. Charities can take steps to address this, by providing reassurance both about the security of donors entering their card information into the website donation form, but also by reiterating the impact that their donation will have on the beneficiaries of that cause. Simple tweaks to donation pages, such as putting a padlock on the screen to instil a greater sense of security and adding a few lines of text reaffirming the need for the donation under the payment boxes, can make all the difference. As we've said before in other episodes of this podcast, finding the balance between qualitative storytelling and quantitative impact telling is the cocktail that charities should be aiming for. The right mix of emotion and rationale and then mutual reward as well. This will help to ensure that both parties, the charity and the donor, benefit, which is then more likely to lead to longer and better relationships. Tim likened the charity's relationship with its donors to that of a relationship with another person from another person and added that people give to people. When I think back to the most fulfilling relationships I have, both personally and professionally, these are all reciprocal relationships where I feel that I get as much as I give. And when we think about the charity supporters we have contacted, as a charity, or sought to build relationships with, or perhaps how charities have sought to build relationships with us as a donor, does it always feel that way? Is it reciprocal? I know from my own experience as a charity marketer and as a recipient of charity marketing, it's certainly not always the case. In fact, it's rarely the case, and there's need for improvement. The potential of a fulfilling relationship as a donor to a cause, which is seeking to change some small part of the world for the better, could be seen as the most important thing we ever do. And with this expectation comes the risk of unprecedented disappointment if a trust in this outcome is not met. I feel that Tim made some excellent points around marketing emails and taking some of the gimmicks out, perhaps removing things like HTML or buttons, to create a more human-to-human communication instead. Facilitating a genuine relationship between you and your donors or your charity and your donors and using technology to assist in doing this more efficiently is vital. Overcoming the laziness of marketing on repeat or the temptation to value quantity over quality, even in the face of reduced effectiveness, is absolutely crucial. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for the beautiful website design. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. You can also find all of our social media links on there and a contact form. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and who are playing us out right now. That's it for me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.